0: Take a knee, take a seat, grab a brew, and listen in. This is the Reorg Podcast.
1: There now. Okay. Yeah. Right, buff, let's go.
0: Welcome to another episode of the Real Podcast. This episode's guest is a bloke named Andrew Rawdon. Now Andrew's is a different one from you know from, from a lot of people. Initially he was a platoon commander, he joined as an officer for the Royal Regiment of Fusiliers He then left in ninety nine and pursued a career and became a padre for the Royal Marines. So yeah, it's a different story. It's it's a story that, you know, I didn't think existed, but it it has. So he was a uh, in a combat experience and then decided to you know, have a career path path change and become a padre. Uh, he then served on Herrick. Served he he. You know, he deployed with with the Marines on Herrick Twelve. Um, we go into you know his whole career before when he when he was in the Fusiliers. He then talks about his transition to becoming a padre. He then talks about the, the time during it and now what he's he and some other. Senior Fusilier veterans are doing this new initiative called uh, Fusiliers versus Suicide, and uh, as I've well documented, and you know, as, as I've said before, you know, the Fusiliers we're suffering a lot, like many others, from suicide. So hopefully, with initiatives initiatives like this um, that he's that he's part of, and many more, then hopefully we can combat suicide and. Hopefully, put it in the past. But let's see. So here it is. I know. I hope you enjoy. Again, there's. I'm not. I'm not getting any better at these online podcasts with with some technical issues. So just bear that in mind. I'm gonna try and get better. But here we go.
2: Yeah. How you doing?
0: Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. So. Great. If you just want to give a background about yourself, why you joined, um, where you're from, where you grew up. Uh, and you know, any background about yourself and then why you joined the army, when you joined the army, and all that good stuff?
2: Sure. Okay, so my name's uh, Andrew, Andrew Rording. I am um, a second child of four children. I was born in Highbury uh, in Islington. So I've got to get in there that Arsenal beat Newcastle 2 0 in the uh, third round of the FA Cup. And, I mean, you um, can't brag
0: about Arsenal series. <laughs>
2: <initially>. <laughs> Look, do you know what? We have to take the opportunities where they come <laughs> because it's a roller coaster ride, my friend. And, uh, you know, who knows when we're going to be, you know, fighting relegation. But anyway, so I, 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 you know, one of my claims to fame is I did grow up. Oh, I was born in a little flat uh, just off Hill Road in Highbury. Then we moved to a place called Palmer's Green uh, in North London and I grew up in North London. Um Uh, I never, ever thought growing up that I would be in the British Army because I knew nothing about the British Army. The only thing I knew about the British Army was that every year we used to go and see the Lord Mayor's uh, show. uh, And we'd stand on the sidelines and all these bands would go up and down and all this sort of good stuff. And we used to go and see the changing of guards at Buckingham Palace um, uh, and that sort of thing. But otherwise, I didn't know anything about the British Army. The only other image I had in my head was... We used to go on these uh, holidays down to a place called Exmouth in Devon, and we would travel past what I now know to be Limpston, the uh, command, uh, Commander Training Centre of Royal Marines. And I just remember as a young boy seeing a barrier going up and down and uh, men in sort of camouflage uniform. But otherwise, I grew up in what we might describe as a very religious house, a very Christian house. My parents would have described themselves as committed Christians, born again Christians and all this sort of thing. And uh, because it was so Christian and really the only book that really we were supposed to read was the Bible and all the rest of it. Uh, it meant that we had no guns in the house. There were no guns, no toy guns, uh, no dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. I mean, dinosaurs didn't exist because they weren't in the Bible. Uh, There was no TV, no alcohol and all the rest of it. So I look back now and to be honest, I probably uh, God bless your parents, but I probably would describe growing up in a sect, uh, maybe in what we might describe as a Christian cult, Um, Mm -hmm. not an extreme Christian cult, but nevertheless, uh, an upbringing where everything is very controlled and uh, everything is very religious. And um, I think the other thing is that, if I'm honest, I had a traumatic uh, childhood and it wasn't deliberately traumatic, but there were mental health issues uh, in the background. My dear grandmother, who was just an amazing person, uh, seriously suffered with mental health issues. I think probably now she'd be described as uh, bipolar. Uh, She lived in our house um, after a time. And, uh, you know, my dad had to um, screw in the windows so she wouldn't throw herself out. Uh, I can still picture the scratch marks on the wall. She's scratching at the wallpaper. I used to be the one that volunteered to take dinner up to her. And, you know, sometimes she'd throw the dinner against the wall. Now, you know, as a young child, you're just doing this thing. You love your grandma, but there's clearly something going on, but you can't really interpret Mm. it. But I think the other trauma that was in my childhood was that my my parents believed in discipline a verse in the bible spare the rod spoil the child and uh, i was the one that got the rod you know second child mm. which means i'm in competition with the eldest child so if the eldest child feels compromised in any way he points the finger at the second child and the second child gets the blame and the second child gets it third child keeps their head down uh, and just keeps out of the way so second child fighting for survival um, you know got it and um And at the time, you know, I was just a brave little boy that, you know, when my dad used a bamboo skip stick or my mum used a slipper or whatever, I just took it, right? Mm -hmm. And I can still feel it. I can still sort of uh, see the welts. But it was just, you know, I'm doing this because I love you. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was the way it rolled. But I think probably when looking back, that was the first injection of violence into me. And it made me very aggressive. So I was someone that, although I was bright, and I did well at school on one level. Certainly initially, uh, I was always fighting. You know, uh, I was a fighter, and I'd get into trouble fighting, but I'd always get away with it because my marks were good. Um, but yeah. then after GCSE, by the time GCSEs came along, I mean they weren't GCSEs; they were O levels. I really just did enough to get by. Got a handful of O levels. By the time I got to A levels, I'd had enough, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, the truth is, I was, I was. Skipping school, I was playing truant and, and uh, all the rest of it, but no one knew. I got away with it again because everyone thinks, oh, he's going to come good, you know, because he's yeah. bright, it'll come good, everything will be okay. But when it came down to it, it wasn't okay. And I think I got a D in French. And the only essays I wrote that two years was probably in my French exam. I got a D in French A level, and I got two Ns. And I don't to this day, I think M was near me, so he put his name on or whatever it was. Um, yeah. So, um, you know, on one level, I would have appeared to have been uh, a really nice guy uh, and and all the rest of it. But underneath that sort of really nice guy stuff, hiding behind this sort of Christian upbringing, I guess I was just a very aggressive, traumatized uh, child. But I got away with it because I was in a relatively secure framework, but I was in trouble Mm -hmm. with the police uh i mean i i I did a lot of risk-taking stuff um i was picked up by the police for shoplifting all sorts Mm -hmm. of stuff but because I, you know because i came from a good household i got away with it and i remember i mean friends and i I would have led it we broke into a school we got up on the roof i mean i just love this sort of stuff but when the police came because i was a good boy i just got down and said hello to the police you know (laughs) you know and uh and, you know, oh, where are you from? or oh, down there. Oh, you come from a good address. Don't do it again. Off you go. You know, so mm. that was the way it rolled. And um, I didn't think about the, the injustice of that for other children that were going to, you know, treat be treated in a different way. But anyway, when it came. Uh, so I was really by the time I'd failed my A-levels, I was just looking where am I going to go in life? And my parents mm. weren't really giving any direction. I mean, all we needed to know was that Jesus was coming again. And people need to know about Jesus. OK, um, so I, I the first job I got was working with children with cerebral palsy uh, mm-hmm. as a classroom assistant. And I loved it. I loved mm-hmm. it. And, you know, to this day, I think if only someone had taken me and put their arm around me and said, you know what? Why don't you train as a social worker? Or why don't you train as a, you know, redo your A-levels and train as a child psychologist or something like that. Maybe, you know, that's what I could have been. But no mm-hmm. one was doing that. So I was just taking control of my own life at this point. And um, it's literally, this is what happened. I went to the local library. And I took down this big, uh, I went to the reference section to like job employment. And I took this big volume off the shelf. And it was the A to Z of opportunities, right? Mm-hmm. And I started to flick through and I got past archaeologist and archivist and I came to army <laughs> Right? and I looked down army. All right. And there was soldier and there was officer. And in the officer thing, it said it's all about leadership. Now, if I'd been a success at all, I'd been a success as a as a Cub Scout. And then as a scout, you know, and I got my chief scout award and all this sort of thing. And, you know, I was a good scout. Yeah. And uh, my scout leader always has always encouraged me in leadership, you see. So suddenly I'm looking at this page that says army. You need to be fit. Well, I was fit, and you need a minimum of five O levels. Well, I had nine O levels, including English and maths. And it was about leadership and leadership potential, right to this address. So that's how it started. Um, mm-hmm. I just thought I can do this, I'm fit. I think I've got leadership potential. My scout leader tells me has. I've got the minimum qualification, which is 5 o levels. Give it a go. And uh, I went to somewhere near Trafalgar Square and some bloke in a pinstripe suit, you know, gave me £10 for turning up. And uh, off we went. Now, it must have been clear. I went to the uh, regular commissions board. I think it was called this three-day thing at Westbury. It must have been very clear to the people looking at me that this guy didn't have a clue, right? I had no mm. worldview. Oh, before mm-hmm. you go, buy buy one of these big newspapers and find out about politics. I had no worldview. I couldn't talk about anything apart from Jesus, quite honestly. Um, uh, but I obviously had something. I knew that, you know, how to get across uh, this divide using barrels. Or, you know, I was just thinking on my feet and I and I, and I I pulled it off and I, I got through Westbury. Um, but prior to that, um I was I was sent to on a potential officer candidate course, which was being run by the Royal Coral Transport. So if you were like me, no army background, slightly question mark. What they would do is back in the day was they would send you on one of these courses, which was basically just a beasting. It was mm-hmm. a character development confidence building course. And uh, it was just a permanent beasting. And the idea was we're going to sift the grain and we're going to see who's really determined and who's really got it. And fortunately, I was very fit, incredibly fit. Uh, mm-hmm. And I suppose I was articulate and bright enough. So uh, I managed to get through that. Then I went to Westbury. Uh, then I got I didn't get I think I only got short service commission because I didn't have a level. So I couldn't have got a regular commission. And then I was sent to Sandhurst. But again, at Sandhurst, instead of going straight on to the standard military course, I was sent to something called Row Allen Company. Um, Rowan and Company was, again, like a character development thing. Let's see if they mm-hmm. really want it. Let's see if they've got it. And mm-hmm. um, I actually came out with the stag's head on that, which was for the best cadet for Rowan and Company. Um, mm-hmm. But at this point, I was um, destined, I think, to join the Royal Corps of Transport. I had no army connections. My grandfather had been down the mines. The other grandfather was home guard and a butcher. No regimental connections at all. But as I went through Sandhurst, it was clear to me that actually I wanted to be infantry.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: uh, one of the instructors there was Royal Regiment Fusiliers. And I was born and raised in London, and there was therefore the connection with the Royal Fusiliers, 7th of Foot. Uh, and mm-hmm. in time, I was accepted by the Royal Regiment Fusiliers as a potential officer. Then I was commissioned in 1990 and joined the 2nd Battalion uh, in December 1990.
0: So you're so just just going off um, something so people can kind of get get to understand is your background is very, not too dissimilar to how a normal entry soldier would be. Like yeah. Because you, you, because sometimes in, as us normal entries, we put officers on a pedestal of someone different to who we are. You know, we, we, are, we, we just see officers as being posh and you know, a bit smarter than us, but not um, yeah. but in reality, someone like yourself you know I wouldn't say it's too dissimilar to how no. a lot of a lot of people you join as a private soldier you know
2: yeah exactly and I think I mean the thing is I mean I was just I was in survival mode I mean I remember mm-hmm. going to Sandhurst and I'll never forget I can still picture it now I meant I met this guy called James and um I can picture it out we were going into some hall or something in Sandhurst he said oh what school did you go to and I said Latimer. Now there's two Latimer schools. There's Latimer Grammar School, and then there's the Latimer School, which is a, a fee-paying, you know, private education school. And um, I didn't say Latimer Grammar. I just said Latimer. He said, "Oh, I think we rode against you." And I'm looking at him and thinking, <laughs> "Do you know what, mate? You did not row against us." You yeah. Um, so, no, I think. Uh, My, my, you know, my mother, my mum would say we were lower, lower middle class. I don't, we weren't Mm -hmm. working class, right? Mm -hmm. Let's be honest. But there wasn't a lot of money around. Um, My my parents are very careful with money. But no, I don't come, I don't come from a a, a well-to-do background. I'm not privately educated. And I think that's why I had to work very hard. I didn't realize I was working very hard. They, whatever they threw at me, I just took it on. But yeah. I think that's why I had to do the uh, the potential officer course prior mm-hmm. to the uh, the actual regular commissions board. And then after regular commissions board, I had to do Roe Allen Company.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And, um, and I think I just had to work out what you had to do to fit in, which meant you had to dress a certain way.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, you
2: had to sound a certain way. You had to look a certain way. And I think uh, probably I think I did have leadership potential. I I think I had some of that, but I was just blessed, you know, with with a a high level of fitness. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And I have to say, you know, looking back now, I take my hat off to those guys, you know, who really, really, really had to work hard Mm. to prove themselves physically. Um, And I was just bouncing along at the front of any run very, very easily. Um, I think if I didn't have that fitness looking back, I'm not sure where I would have, you know, where I would have uh, made my mark. Yeah. Uh, Because as you say, I mean, socially, culturally, uh, in terms of my family connections, zero, Mm. absolute zero. And I think the other thing was, I mean, I didn't know anything about the military, yeah. nothing at all. I had no interest in it. I mean, I, I remember guys at school playing war games. I think if you'd have stopped me at the entrance of Santa's, I just want to ask you one question. Uh, Tell me the dates of the Second World War. I couldn't have told you. Right. <laughs> I had no interest.
1: Mm. It
2: just it just didn't feature in my childhood. So. um and, and and looking back now, you know, I can think, well, Andrew, what would it have been like if you'd read history books, if you'd read about Napoleon or Wellington or any of these characters uh, and applied that to what you then had to do at Sandhurst or even in Second Battalion Royal Fusiliers? I think it would have been very different.
0: Mm. Yeah. And then you finished you finish Sandhurst in... 1990 um mm-hmm. then you joined the second battalion fusiliers yeah. war regiment the fusiliers yeah um what you were there till 99 is that right yeah yeah so I was yeah. from 1990 to
2: 99
0: yeah and what tours did you do when you were at it, when you were in? well um in august the, the first time I,
2: Yeah, well, in August 1991, so within eight months of joining the battalion, we went to Northern Ireland and Mm -hmm. um, we were uh, the resident battalion in Ballykinla. We were there for two and Mm -hmm. and a half years now. Mm -hmm. I probably was the longest serving platoon commander ever in Northern Ireland because because I wasn't a graduate, that meant I, I stayed a lieutenant. I can't remember how long. But anyway, I did the whole of my time as a platoon commander, two and a half years as a platoon commander uh, in Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, they were trialing two and a half years. And I think there's only two battalions did it. So anyway, we were there uh, from 91 to 94. Mm-hmm. Uh, then after that, we went to the Falklands uh, just for four months. Then in end of 94, that was after we moved to Dell Barracks in Chester. Then also while we are in Barracks, Chester in 1995, I went with a small detachment from 2nd Battalion to Bosnia as mm-hmm. part of the multinational brigade, um, yep. just prior to the Dayton Peace Agreement. Mm-hmm. And then in 1997, when I was intelligence officer, uh, this time from um, Sela in, in Germany, uh, mm-hmm. I went second time uh, to Bosnia, uh, this time right. under, under NATO, not United Nations.
0: hmm and and so the 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 reason i started this podcast is to speak to combat veterans okay. and you know i you know i spoke with you before and i want to get into your experiences in northern ireland um yeah. and if you can just run through them for me
2: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, the thing is that obviously since Iraq and Afghanistan, we can talk about combat, but when you think about Northern Ireland, um, you wouldn't necessarily say it was combat operations. I mean, all of us Mm. carried 120 rounds. I mean, I carried 120 rounds for two and a half years and didn't fire one of them, you know, Mm. Um, and uh, that's actually quite hard work. I mean, that's quite hard work psychologically. Uh, walking mm. around for two and a half years, particularly after friends have been killed and injured and not being able to fire one round because, you know, as an mm. infantry officer, that's what you're trained to do as a soldier. That's what you're trained to do. Um, and I think there's there, there's a discussion to be had about that. Um, yeah, well, um we, I think there were three incidents, three main incidents in terms of what we might call combat experience that I was involved in. Um, the first was at the end of 1991 in Uri, uh, my patrol came under attack with a coffee jar bomb, um, children uh, thrown from, from behind children, so uh, the, the, the children were a screen, I suppose, and then a coffee mm. jar bomb. Uh, that's just a coffee jar, glass coffee jar, you know. Uh, But with uh, with a uh, with explosives inside. And when the when the glass breaks, it goes off. And fortunately, I mean, uh, Fusilier Oxnard um, took the brunt of that. But I think it went behind a rock. And fortunately, he's still alive today. But that that sort of got the ball, the ball rolling. Um, Mm -hmm. And then. On the 29th of January, 1992, we were working for 211 UDR. That's the Ulster Defence Regiment. We were brigade reserve. And so every now and then we'd be called in to do tasks to sort of help other units for whatever reason. And uh, I was given this task to go and put a lurk in like an an OP looking over um, a terrorist house or something like this. Mm -hmm. And the way we deployed were in Land Rovers. So with these two Land Rovers um, or could be three Land Rovers, three Land Rovers, actually, in a multiple of 12, four in each Land Rover, um, you know, driver, commander and two in the top as uh, as as top cover, you know, pointing in different directions. And we were driving towards a place called Lurgan um, in, in, in in Northern Ireland. And we're going down this long uh, road. We had no intelligence. And I looked at my map. I did a quick map of map appreciation and uh, I could see from my map we're coming to an area that was green. OK, so the map was color coded. Green was Republican nationalists, i.e. not friendly to the British Army. Orange was uh, a loyalist unionist, possibly, potentially friendly. Um, white was just sort of people getting on with their lives We so were coming towards this green area. And I could see these traffic lights ahead. And I said to my driver, uh, Wilson three two great bloke. I said, listen, see those traffic lights ahead. We are going through. Okay, do not stop at those traffic lights. It was just a sixth sense thing, you know
1: Hmm.
2: And I said look don't crash don't crash into anyone, but just keep moving We're not going to stop short like a vulnerable point and walk the Land Rovers through I just feel we need to go through those traffic lights, right? Hmm. So we came to these traffic lights and as we went through the traffic lights, I can still picture it now There was a massive bang, right? I can't hear the bang as much as I can see. Right, the whole Mm. of the windscreen, just the whole of my vision went orange, and then I can still picture bits of glass coming in on my face. Okay, Mm -hmm. and um, we we uh, Wilson. must have kept control of the Land Rover and that the the engine died and we came to a halt, I don't know, 50 metres or or, or whatever. I cocked my weapon. I jumped out and I went to go and kill someone or find some sort of target. Right. Of course, there was nothing there. Right. I came back. I must have given the, you know, zero. This is whatever contact weighed out. And um, and then there was just, you know, putting the ICP in and controlling the whole situation. Now, what had happened was that the IRA had set up a Mark 12 mortar. That's a shape charge. It's effectively a missile. Um, They'd use it very effectively. They would killed also the French regiment, just neutralized the Land Rover. They'd used it effectively before. And they set this up in the grounds of Roman Catholic Church. And the idea was obviously to kill us. The only reason I'm still alive is that the shape charge, instead of hitting the Land Rover, hit a concrete fence post. Right. So a big slug of concrete went in just in front of my knees because I'm on the pavement side commanding the vehicle and and killed the engine. Right. And another slug of concrete unfortunately uh, got in under the, uh, the visor of uh, another Wilson, Fusilette Wilson in the back and he got a, a slug of shrapnel in his cheek, okay? Otherwise, I just had glass in my face uh, and, and, and blood coming down my face. Hmm. But, uh, okay, so we survived because the, uh, it hit the fence, concrete fence post. We also survived because my sixth sense kicked in and we didn't stop short and we didn't walk the Land Rover through the vulnerable point. Right. Mm. If we had then if the IRA had deliberately put that Mark 12 against a concrete fence post, the idea was to create some sort of blast, you know, shrapnel blast, fragment blast. And, you know, at least I would have been dead with slugs of Mm. concrete and maybe all the other, you know, the other fusiliers, certainly on the pavement side, would have been dead through uh, slugs of concrete. Now, that was significant in that that was combat experience. And Mm. there wasn't a lot of combat experience going around in 1992. I mean, in the early 70s, you're talking about horrendous stuff, you know, firefights, all sorts of stuff going down. Mm. But by 1992, you know, it's becoming much, much more politicized. Um, So as it was, you know, that that was very significant. And I think probably the first, um, you know, that I was the first officer who to, to have, have, you know, uh, had that sort of experience in in terms of the tour then. Now, so... It was significant in terms of the way that I was able to handle that as a young officer and my professional, mm-hmm. um, you know, even advancement uh, and all the rest of it. It was significant in terms of the trauma of it, although at the time I would never even think about that, you know, mm-hmm. I'm only years, years, years later coming to terms with that. But the other way it was significant is this. I was sat around the table in the officer's mess, maybe a day after that, or maybe that, you know, like the next day after that mm-hmm. incident, Okay. And I'll never forget. I can't remember his name. There was a lieutenant colonel there. So you're in lunch in the officer's mess. I'm second lieutenant, you know, nobody from the Royal Regiment Fusiliers. And obviously people are aware that this incident has gone on. Right. Um, And the lieutenant colonel, I can't remember was commanding officer or who he was. It wasn't my regiment uh, said, oh, that will teach you to set a pattern. Right. Mm. Now, the thing is, we didn't set a pattern. was the first and only time we were in that area someone else had set a pattern right Mm. and i think the thing is that if you're a young second lieutenant right and a lieutenant you know a lieutenant colonel says that you've got no right of reply but at that point i was injured seriously injured and it's called a moral injury Mm. okay and he didn't realize what he was doing at the time. And I didn't realize what he was doing at the time. But I look back and that really made me rage. Mm. OK. And that rage went on for decades. And I just want to mention it because I think it's a very significant uh uh point to raise when we you know we were talking about the well-being of of soldiers and the well-being of veterans that it's not just post-traumatic stress disorder it's also something called moral injury and it's mm. also about leadership and it's also about silencing and, and, and about voice so that was uh 29th of january 1992 1st of may 1992 um uh my the, the main area of operations was newry uh, Nuri mm-hmm. town and then from Nuri to the border and uh, I was based down there with my my pool, uh, along with three platoon uh, of a company uh, second battalion and um, six minutes past two on the 1st of May 1992 1,000 kilograms of explosive went off right next to the base uh, that we were in it was called Romeo 1-5 it was a vehicle checkpoint Which really achieved nothing in terms of, um, you know, stopping anyone that might be carrying a weapon because no one in their right mind is going to come through that place. Mm. But it was there to to sort of uh, to show anyone coming uh, from the south into uh, the United Kingdom, into Northern Ireland, that, you know, the British Army were a presence. Uh, So we would stop. We would stop vehicles on the road. But running parallel to uh, this checkpoint was a railway line. And um, in the final Watt Banner report, it's described as one of the most ingenious operations uh, from the IRA. What they did was they modified a van, like a, a Toyota Hiace or, or, mm-hmm. or that sort of thing. They modified a van so that it would sit on the railway line. They uh, took a couple hostage. Uh, Took over their house. They used a JCB digger to put this railway uh, to this van on the railway line. They obviously Mm. filled it with explosive two and a half thousand pounds, one thousand kilograms. They rolled it down the railway line and they reared out the back. What's been described as the longest command wire in the history of terrorism over a kilometre long. Okay. Mm. now what they knew was that in the approach to the uh, to the base was dead ground, was a cutting. And they knew that in that last sort of 100, 200 meters before the base, we could not see down the railway line. And the uh, the observation tower that was on a hill just above the road could not see into there. It was dead ground. Mm. Okay. So they rolled this thing around the railway line. And by the time the uh, the the Sanger sentry, who was looking over the railway line, got to see it and got to, you know, uh, call out the alarm. It was really too late. Hmm. And a really good friend of mine, soldier friend of mine, Fusilier Andrew Grundy, lost his life uh, uh, that night. Uh, I was actually in, I was in bed. I was uh, due to go out on a patrol a couple of hours later, so I was fully clothed. Well, I didn't have my combat jacket on, but I had boots on and all the rest of it. I was in bed. Uh, my, my bedroom completely collapsed on me, I had to crawl out of the rubble. And then, um, you know, as, as the young officer in the base, uh, do, do the follow up, you know, mm. I mean, there's a big, th- I'm not going to go into the details There's a big story, uh, very big story there. I think again, serious traumatic grief. Mm. I, uh, we, we, uh, when we did the head count, we, we, we couldn't find Andrew Grundy. Right. Mm -hmm. And and in that instance, we we didn't know why we couldn't find him. And the reason why we 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 couldn't find him was because the the really heavy uh, sanger that he was in had been lifted up by the blast and just thrown, you know, like putty right back Mm -hmm. into the middle of the base. So when we found him, he was like 10 or more meters from where he should have been. Mm -hmm. Now, I ordered the Casivac of Andrew Grundy. Right, and I still cannot see the body. Right. I, I know the names. I'm pretty certain I know the names of uh, of the soldiers that Kazivaked him.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I I'm pretty certain that one of them is dead by suicide.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, horrendous. And um, so the traumatic grief from that. Uh, it, it took me years. I would say a good ten years before I even acknowledge the impact,
1: mm.
2: right? And even there, they, 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 they could be layers. And um, other people, again, talk about moral injury, survivor guilt, enormous survivor guilt. Mm. Uh, one of my, my team medic said to me, boss, you killed him. We shouldn't have moved him. You killed him by moving him. And, you know, it wasn't a throwaway mark. It was a serious remark from my team medic. And, and for years, I had to think that through. Did I kill him by moving him, you know? Should we have left him there until a doctor come came? You know, who knows in the darkness, in, in the chaos of it all? So mm. uh, traumatic grief, uh, survivor guilt, um, moral injury. Why moral injury? Well, because, um, you know, you don't know how you, I'd ask for CCTV cameras to look down that dead ground. And as mm. young, obviously you don't know how long it takes to get CCTV cameras in. But I mean, we were sitting ducks. I mean, we weren't mm. well protected. And the other thing was I can still picture the railway men walking up and down outside that base. But we weren't allowed to do anything about them because if we disrupted them, we were disrupting the transport networks. But they weren't railway men at all. They were the IRA pacing it out. The other thing about that is this. We were confined to the base. We weren't allowed 300 metres from the base. Why? Because special forces were in the area. And if we went more than 300 metres from the base, then we would compromise what they were doing. Mm. Well, what were they doing? How did the IRA block the road in Garda uniforms? Load a van onto a railway line using a JCB digger. Let it roll down the railway line such that it went off and and Fusili Grundy lost his life. Where were they? What were they doing? So all sorts of question marks. And every time I see an orange JCB digger or any digger, doesn't matter what color it is one of those grab diggers every time I see one of them I'm reminded it's a trigger mm. and um, I mean we can talk through I've, ha- I've had to deal with that um, uh, uh, over decades so that was uh, 1st of May uh, 1992 um, uh, after that I happened to roll my you know um, my brother's car on the outside lane of the M6, you know, with mm. my girlfriend in it, and I should have died then. So I think, you know, I should have died three times uh, in, 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 in 1992 um, at the age of 22 as a young officer. So after that, I guess, I mean, there were some other highs in, in, in Northern Ireland, but I think by the end of it, having done that for two and a half years, you know, I was probably uh, battle-weary. Um, yeah, in, in in all honesty, and I think I Mean I would have said that and I would have said this probably up until my 40th birthday I'm 50 now. I would have said that my biggest regret my biggest regret and I would have said this probably up until I was 40 My biggest regret was I never had a chance to kill anybody mm. and where they came from was all that repression of walking around for two and a half years, right? With 120 rounds, just waiting for something to happen, for a bomb to go mm. off, you know? And I think it, it, it's, it, that's why I think, you know, when Iraq and Afghanistan came along, you know, there was a lot of people saying, Do you know what? You know, let's go for this because it's a chance to get the rounds down yeah um anyway it's another conversation but that was that was uh northern ireland
0: so and you were so how old were you at this point
2: well i was 22 i probably looked about 14 Twenty. um <laughs> yeah i mean I was how twenty-two. Did you... yeah go
0: on so one, one of the things i want to get into is how it you know you, you already said you've until you know you took years to you know overcome that and face that you know mentally
1: mm-hmm.
0: but obviously this was this was 1992 so this was before we had any how how was it was it kind of like a just pick up and just carry on kind of
2: yeah mentality? i mean is that
0: what you were told to do I, yeah,
2: yeah yeah i mean i think we, you know we're out the next day We're out the next day from my from my memory. I mean, maybe, you know, a company commander or someone um, might say differently. But my recollection is we were just out the next day. And I think
1: Mm.
2: I mean, I remember um, after 29th of January 1992. I mean, Wilson, not the driver, but the guy that was top cover who took the shrapnel, you know, into his cheek. I remember at that time there was there was something they, they you know, there was some mention of something called a CPN right a community mm. psychiatric nurse and i have to say and i don't know whether i say it to my shame uh, i probably looking back i ought to say it to my shame although shame's not a good emotion is as a platoon commander i was thinking Do you know what i ain't letting wilson going anywhere near a cpn right mm. one because wilson's going to use this uh, you know i might have been wrong but my assessment was wilson will use this as an excuse you know to
0: get time off yeah. yeah 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 secondly
2: i mean i was quite sort of um you know from my background my christian background i was quite in tune with sort of um people's emotions mm-hmm. and secondly <laughs> i knew the background of my soldiers and i thought you know what you scratch the surface of wilson and he's gonna have all sorts of stuff to tell you you know mm-hmm. forget about mark 12 mortars um, so really, probably at that point, the CPM was just in the ticket, uh, just ticking a box. But no, I think there was there was nothing like um, trauma risk management, nothing at all. And, you know, this was um, this is uh, against the background of manning difficulties, retention mm-hmm. difficulties. You don't you know, you didn't want to and you couldn't afford to lose soldiers. Mm. You know, it, it, it's simple as that. So you just kept going um and in you know in one sense i think that was a good thing um because you know it showed we were resilient and uh you had the framework of training but i think the aftermath is 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 quite difficult but you know these things the, the, the these things go deep
0: you know mm. yeah and then you so northern Ireland finished, you did two and a half years there um yeah you did your You you were saying to me before that during your first tour of Bosnia was when you kind of, your your attitude towards what you wanted to do or the, the direction you were going changed. Can you go into that?
2: Yeah, I think... I mean, you know, Bosnia, 1995, multinational brigade. I was commanding a small uh, team of French, uh, small French communications team. My right hand man was Cezanne's chef Spinella, who was a parachute, really big parachute sergeant from from, you know, from France. Right. So I was using my O-level French to command this communications team. We were attached to the British battle group, the Devon and Dorset, you know, they were a warrior fighting um, battle group, um, great CEO. I mean, in one sense, it was amazing militarily. We broke the siege of Sarajevo, all this sort of stuff. And, um, you know, I was doing it on my own with this uh, French communications team. So uh, again, it was, it was amazing professionally, but what I was seeing, it was changing my worldview. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we were based on Mount Igman, which is where the 1980 uh, Sarajevo Winter Olympics were. We were in bombed out hotels uh, and mm-hmm. all sorts of stuff uh, above Sarajevo. Uh, and the only way we got into Sarajevo was through the Igman logistic route, OK, through Serb territory, which is United Nations route that was left open to bring food into mm-hmm. Sarajevo. So I saw the tunnel. I saw the tunnel that they built under Sarajevo. I saw in Sarajevo, uh, people uh, having to queue for water, children carrying Mm. canisters of water on their head. I saw that every patch of ground in Sarajevo, in in the main areas was being used to grow vegetables in order to feed people. Mm. But I also saw that in the middle of Sarajevo, you could go to a hotel with all the windows intact and you could eat ice cream with journalists and with mafia and with podgy little boys in shorts. Right. As if there wasn't a war going on with Mm -hmm. massive black Mercedes, Mercedes outside. okay? And I think it just made me think. And of course, I'm coming from a religious background. And so I'm aware of uh, Serbian Orthodox religion, Mm -hmm. uh, Croat Catholic religion and uh, caught in between Bosnian Muslims. So it makes you think, what is really going on here? Mm. And what role does religion play in all this? Mm. And what role does power play in all this? And where's the money going? Mm -hmm. And what is money doing in terms of, you know, uh, certain parts of Sarajevo, there's no violence at all because that's where the money is. Other parts of Sarajevo, the poorest people in Europe are just fighting for survival. And I think that that just started to influence my worldview and really make make me think. Such that when we got to uh, Bosnia in 1997, and I was the intelligence officer, I found it quite difficult. And I remember, uh, you know, the commanding officer kept coming in, you know, IO, what are you doing? You know, where is it? He wanted his intelligence preparation of the battlefield. And I just couldn't I just couldn't roll out, you know, what he wanted in terms of just the conventional intelligence preparation of the battlefield. Hmm. Uh, And I did roll it out. And when I rolled it out, it was much more about human interaction. And uh, it was much more about the human terrain rather than the sort of conventional terrain. And I think, I mean, abiding image from 1997 was when the photograph was brought in. A man came in and he brought a photograph in and he showed me this pile of bodies. I can still, you know, tears are going to well up. And he showed me this pile of bodies and I think it was his family. Mm -hmm. And he was effectively saying, what are you going to do about this? And I basically said nothing, right? It's not within our mission, you know? And, you know, either I didn't have the energy to go there or quite frankly, that wasn't where we were going because we had other things to do. And again, mm. moral injury. <clears throat> now, you know, some people think, fuck him, you know, the fucking poor of Bosnia. What's the big deal, mate? You know, but I think with my background, with that sort of um, compassion in my background from my Christian upbringing, not that it's not in other backgrounds at all, I just want to say, you know, but, you know, mm. some of the kindness I did get um, from, you know, someone like my grandmother, for example, Mm -hmm. I think, uh, I, I really, I really found that quite difficult and I think increasingly I found it difficult just to sort of fit in with, you know, the institution Mm -hmm. and loyalty to the institution and loyalty to the military, to the military machine, because my brain wasn't letting me do that. And it was raising big question marks about what is actually going on here. And I think it meant that by the time I became the adjutant and I was much more involved in welfare issues and, you know, could see in terms of how we look after people and how we treat people. And, you know, I probably got it wrong so many times. By that point, I was thinking, you know what, my heart is with the men. My heart is with the soldiers. My heart is with their families. My heart is with the people who've seen combat and come off worse. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not a military person. You know, mm. I'm not I'm, I'm not a military machine. I'm not in this for my own advancement and for mm. my own promotion. I can't do it. You know, it's, it doesn't come to me. It's not my upbringing. You know, I'm more about people. And um, so the whole number of things were coming together. Um, towards sort of 98, 99, where I suddenly thought, no, Andrew, you know, uh, y- you know, you you can do something different, and that's that's when I decided, you know what, the best thing to do would be a padre.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and so I resigned my commission. I mean, it was a it was a massive risk. Mm-hmm. I had a wife at that point. I had a child that was born. We'd given everything up. We we had no house. We had nothing. We were living in a quarter in Germany. And, um, you know, I was the adjutant of the battalion. We'd given everything up. My wife had given up everything. She was a chartered public finance accountant. She'd given that up to come and join me in Germany. Daughter born in Hanover Hospital. I had to give about eight months notice or something, you know, and you couldn't go unless we get another adjutant in place and all this sort of stuff. So I had to take a step of faith. And fortunately, I managed to get a job. And so we went, you know, we went from living in a married quarter, maybe detached married quarter in cellar in Germany to living above a church hall under a corrugated iron roof on £9,000 a year. Mm. Uh, and that was in order to follow a call to become an army chaplain. And the only way to do that was to leave the army completely and then try and mm-hmm. get into the church.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then so you. You then rejoined in later on in in, in the 2000s, didn't you? Do you want to just talk about your time between leaving the army and rejoining the the Navy or the military, rejoining the military? Sure.
2: Yeah, so I left, you know, I left the army uh, to follow a call to holy orders in the Anglican Church, become an Anglican priest. And, you know, I became an Anglican priest. I was ordained in the Diocese of London. Uh, But the whole thing, the whole reason for this was to become an army chaplain. And so after I'd done my, you know, had to do like three years as a a curate. uh, And then after you'd done your first three years within a church, you could go to the army and say, look, I'd like to join the Royal Army Chaplain's Department. So uh, in 2005, I think it was, uh, I went to the army uh, chaplain's department um, uh, to go through the selection to become an army chaplain. And they turned me down. Hmm. And uh, they basically said to me, I mean, in the interview, you need to re- forget about your 10 years in the army. You need to forget that it happened. Uh, and we're now going to restart the interview. You do realize if you come to the army, you might have to be uh, fit. You might have to do physical fitness. I'm just looking at them. Right. <laughs> yes. You know, that's not going to be a problem. I was always like, you know, in the top three in the battalion when it came to running. Hmm. You know, well, um, you do realize that you might have to go to some dangerous places. Yes. Done two and a half years in Northern Ireland, you know, two tours of Bosnia. So, I mean, at this point, they're like undoing their top buttons, loosening their ties, undoing their service jackets because the buttons are about to pop, you know, mm. uh, and they just couldn't cope with someone. I don't know what it was. They just couldn't cope with someone going to say, oh, yes, I'd be very frightened, but you'll be praying for me, father, won't you? Or, or whatever they wanted. And um, hmm. I think they were just threatened by my experience as an inventory officer. Um, I mean, as an adjutant, you, you basically, you know, you oversee the chaplains. So, yeah. you, you know, you see a bit about chaplains. Um, anyway, I didn't get in. And that just took the rug from under our feet. I mean, hmm. you know, I didn't want to be a vicar. My wife didn't want to be a vicar's wife. And uh, I was like, what are we going to do now? And I'd been involved Um, in what we might call peace and reconciliation work. So it, you know, while I was at theological college, I remember a theological student died. It was an aneurysm, something horrendous, just a young man just died in his sleep. And we went to the funeral and I'm sat in this church and I was in absolute floods of tears, uncontrollable, choking with tears. I think, Andrew, what is going on? You barely even knew this guy, right? And I just realized, actually, it was all the repressed grief, you know, I mean, it's probably the 10th anniversary or something, you know, going back to Romeo 1 5 and the loss Mm. of Andrew Grundy. And I was just uncontrollable, uncontrollable uh, uh, tears. And so in theological college, I realized that, um, you know, there was an issue here. I need to confront this. And I also realized I couldn't get up in a pulpit and say, and Jesus says, love your enemies, unless I was going to do it myself. So Mm -hmm. I went on a journey to love the IRA, because if you said to me, who's your enemy? I'd say, we're the IRA. They killed my Mm -hmm. friend. They killed another friend, Bez, you know, Lance Corporal Bezwick. They injured a good officer friend of mine and I should be dead, right? It had a Mm -hmm. big impact on my life. You know, it shattered my life and my relationships. So I went on a, a on a journey completely on my own, you know, no security, nothing. I was going to go with my own integrity, my own humanity towards the IRA. And um, I got involved in secret talks. I went out on a massive limb uh, in order to do that. But I mean, you know, I was probably the only British Army person from Great Britain they'd had any contact with. So they took me very mm. seriously. I don't know who they thought I was working for. I don't think I don't think they knew that I was completely independent, but um mm. Uh, so, you know, I, I I did that. And then, um, unf- unfortunately, during that time, I separated from my first wife. And mm-hmm. I was working for a Christian charity at the time. And when I separated from my first wife, I said, oh, well, we're a Christian charity and you can't do that sort of thing. You have to resign. Mm-hmm. So I, I didn't resign immediately. But once uh, the funding ran out and they wouldn't pay me anymore, I, I was basically homeless because I was living in their mm-hmm. house. And uh, I went into survival mode, you know, um, mm-hmm. I had a camping stove. And uh, I went back into military skills. I managed to get a housing association house. Um, and yeah, I used to go out and chop wood. I used to go out with the saw and my big burger and go out into woods at night, chop wood, and then use it to heat the back burner. Um, mm. in, in this little house I was living in, I'd butter on the windowsill. I had no fridge. Uh, I used to queue in Sainsbury's for the yellow labels, wait for the yellow labels to be put on uh, in order to, you know, to get the cheap food. And... Mm. Um, I managed to get a job as a security guard on secure, you know, on a minimum wage. I couldn't get a job in the church because I would separated from my wife. Plus, i had done this peace and reconciliation work and all this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm traveling, getting on a bus to go see my three children. I have three children by then. I'm sleeping in hedgerows so I can get up in the morning on a Saturday. So I'm go to knock on the door and maybe see them, you know, this sort of stuff. And I thought, this is crazy. And uh, I made some relationships with some Vietnam veterans Vietnam veteran chaplains or Vietnam veteran soldiers who then become priests and they were very, very generous. I can't remember how we connected online or something like this. And they used to fly me over to America and I go to these sessions they did for war veterans and I made some good friends there. And one of them was a former U.S. Marine who'd seen time in Beirut. And uh, he made contact. He said, Andrew, why don't you go for the Royal Marines, be a chaplain to the Royal Marines? I thought, yeah, do you know what? My first one of my first memories is going past Limston, that barrier mm-hmm. going up and down and guys in camouflage uniform when I'm like six years old going on holiday to Devon. So I made contact with the Royal Navy and God bless the Royal Navy. They, you know, they just, yeah, come on in, come on in. So the end of 2007, uh, I joined the Royal Navy mm-hmm. uh, as uh, uh, as a chaplain. Um, the work I've been doing prior to that was uh, pretty cutting edge stuff, bringing British army veterans back into uh, real heartland IRA areas in order to come to terms with their own traumatic experiences. Um, and the reason we got away with it because the people who were facilitating it were people who had uh, been in the IRA or maybe still mm-hmm. in the IRA uh, mm-hmm. and been in prison for the IRA. And uh, you know, anyway, so, end of two thousand and seven, I joined the uh, joined the Royal Navy as a chaplain. My first year was out in the ships, anti-piracy operations in the Gulf of Aden with HMS Cumberland. You know, that was very, very significant. Um, and then I joined 40 Commando Royal Marines.
0: Mm-hmm. So, just so before we before we go into your actual experiences when you're in, you are know, in as a padre for the Royal Navy and the um, Royal Marines. Mm-hmm. How so? You're you're there. You've you've worked your ass off, and you're you're kind of homeless, as a sense. You're you're living in that house. You're you're mm-hmm. not where you want to be. Uh-huh. How how did you? How were you as a person? How did you feel? You know, you've almost lost everything to gain to try and gain something. How did you How did that keep? What kept moving you forward?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think. Um... Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. How did I, how did I keep going? I mean, I had to keep going, right? Mm. Um, I mean, I had to keep going because I had three, uh, three children who, who, who I loved and I had a, quite a close emotional emotional bond to, I was quite, you know, quite hands on dad. So mm-hmm. I had to keep going. I mean, I think I had to keep going because in one sense the Andrew Rawding show just sort of had to keep on the road. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I think the thing is, that I did have outlets. So, I mean, I was still an ordained Anglican priest mm-hmm. and, you know, the local rector in Armagh um, sort of took me a bit under his wing. And so, you know, on Sunday mornings, you know, I was able to sort of shave and shower and, and turn up and look like a priest, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and and that sort of thing. So, I mean, I was able to keep the show on the road um, because I had the personality and um, enough, do you know what I mean? Enough of the trappings Mm -hmm. to look like everything looked like everything was okay. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And I think I just always, I always had, um, it was always going to work out. I think once you've had these near-death experiences, right? I mean, in one sense, I mean, I own no property. I have no mm-hmm. money, right? Mm-hmm. And um, for years of my life, I was just living like, you know, I'm not going to see tomorrow without really knowing it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I suppose, to some extent, I still live like that, okay? Because I've, I've, I've you know, I've been too close to death. Add to that mm-hmm. visits to Rwanda and places like that and all the rest of it. But I, I don't want to get too religious here, um, but I do believe in the power of love.
0: Me a second. Go again.
2: Yeah. I mean, I I don't want to get into religion here because I don't think it's about religion, um, although that has been a, a, a real. Um, uh, you know, strength to me, but it's not so much religion as in organized religion, because I would say that, you know, I've come away from that. It's it's mm-hmm. it's saying, you know, Andrew, you survived that and you survived that and -hmm. you survived that and you survived that and you survived that. Right. You'll still arrive. You're still alive for a reason. Right. Mm -hmm. So part of the work that I was doing, um, you know, reaching out the hand to the Iran, the island to make peace was this. Andrew Grundy's death was not in Bear With me a
0: second. You've gone all. Go again.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, one of the main motivators for the work I was doing in terms of peace and reconciliation work was this. It wasn't just about me, but it's about reframing my experiences and also ensuring that Andrew Grundy's death, Michael Beswick's death was not in vain. These are not just, you know, soldiers that we're going to hear about on page seven of the Sun newspaper or just sort of, you know, names. no. They lost their life. It was horrendous, absolutely horrendous for their families. But I will make sure that out of their death will come something good, right? Mm-hmm. Will come a better life for other people. I will do everything I can to make sure that other soldiers' families don't have the same experience in Northern Ireland. So what I was doing was before even uh, the IRA decommissioned, before the towers come, towers had come down, and I was putting myself out there uh in order to do that so i suppose i've always just what kept me going training resilience Mm -hmm. you can Mm -hmm. do this you know your Mm -hmm. life has not ended the universe has kept you alive for a reason what is that reason find it and 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 do something good out of it so i don't know i mean i wasn't sitting down and thinking about that i was just getting on yeah
0: just getting on with it you're now a padre for you a padre at this point yeah, I'm a, a Royal Royal Naval Chaplain. Yeah, yeah, Royal Naval Chaplain. And then you, if you if you just want to describe the incidents that you occurred, and you know, get it from you as a perspective, rather, you know, you've left the army as a infantry combat veteran, um, combat infantry officer. You're there yeah. to to now you're in, in the Royal Navy as a chaplain. Yeah, um, but you're still dealing with similar incidences where. If you, so if you just want to go into that for me, the first one.
2: Yeah, so, I mean, it was very interesting because um, I had to go uh, uh, the Britannia Royal Naval College um, to, you know, go for that whole sort of officer selection thing and, 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 and the officer of training. But, yeah, I mean, I'm now in the senior service. Um, And I could almost see why it was the senior service. And I think, you know, there's there's, there's a cultural discussion about, you know, uh, a cultural discussion there. But I found myself in in frigates, Type 22 frigates, and uh, particularly in HMS Cumberland. Mm -hmm. Um, We were out in the Gulf of Aden doing anti-piracy operations. And um, we we got involved in uh, direct contact with, uh, with, with, with pirates. And we had a detachment of Royal Marines uh, in the ship, and some of them were Afghan veterans. And some Somali pirates had uh, hijacked a Yemeni's uh, fishing boat, a skiff. And uh, these Somali pirates were drugged up, and uh, we came into contact with them. And uh, I mean, actually, the only way and they were sort of taking on this uh, naval frigate, which was absolute madness. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only way that we could do anything about them within the rules of engagement was to use uh, the hoses on them. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yes. <laughs> you've got this incident where, you know, they're hosing, trying to hose, hose off uh, this, this fishing boat that's been uh, hijacked by um, uh, Somali pirates. Anyway, I mean, the thing is, I want to be on the front line. OK, so what they do is they deploy the Royal Marines. Uh, mm. They send these the Royal Marines out in the in 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 the boats. Right. And um, oh, it's just a sight to behold. So I put on my I put on my body armor. I put on my helmet. I mean, like, you know, all these Royal Navy boys and girls, a lot of them are just like, you know, in lockdown peering out and I want to be on the front line. So I go out about the only person out on the deck and I go out onto the flight deck. And I'm watching these Royal Marines, and it was just, it was, it was a beautiful sight in terms of their drills and everything else. And uh, what happened was that one of the Somali pirates did something very, very foolish. He, he 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 brought a weapon, you know, towards the Royal Marines, and that was it. It's over, yeah. right? Because mm-hmm. uh, these boys aren't messing around. They are yeah. not messing about. So two Somali uh, pirates were killed, but unfortunately, collateral damage was that one of the Yemeni fishermen uh, was was also killed. Okay, so it's a very significant opera- uh, incident uh, for the United Kingdom. You know, suddenly we've got two Somali pirates and a Yemeni fisherman, you know, killed by the Royal Marines and the Royal Navy bobbing about in the Gulf of Aden. I mean, what do we do with them? Now, mm-hmm. I wasn't involved in any of that. Um, Um, uh, but I think it was the first time in 400 years that the Royal Navy had taken on pirates directly. Anyway, I mean, as a chaplain, I was involved and uh, I went to the to the captain and I made sure I was involved in uh, trauma risk management interviews with everyone that had been involved in the incident. I mean, trauma risk management was just coming in.
1: Mm -hmm. Um,
2: But also I wanted to I wanted to get out there because what happened then was we just had to sit in the Gulf of Aden for for UK PLC to make a decision diplomatically on what's going to go on. Mm
1: -hmm. Um,
2: uh, But we've got these bodies bobbing around. And um, I managed to get permission from the captain to go out and uh, get involved because I just thought I can't be just walking around this ship, you know, in the safety and comfort of this ship when when the boys and girls are going out and getting hands on, you know, in this skiff and all the rest of it. You know, I need to I need to be there and find out what they're doing. But also I need to dignify the situation and bring some uh, religious dignity to it so uh I had a a handbook, a chaplain's handbook that uh had some Islamic liturgy in it, albeit it wasn't in Arabic but in english and I researched you know Islamic burial um rites and that sort of thing and I got hold of white sheets uh from from the ship and I went out to the Shemanese fishing boat in order to um you know bring some dignity because uh, the the Yemeni fisherman was still on the boat. He was still on the boat, and the guy being killed it was his brother. Was on the boat, mm-hmm. you know? and you can imagine. I mean, you know, these Yemeni guys had never seen anything like this. And um, so, what I wanted to do was uh, be seen to be doing something which was uh, about their religion, uh, mm-hmm. about some dignity. And uh, I wanted to wrap the bodies in in these white sheets. Now, I was completely naive. OK, the bodies, of course, the three bodies were in body bags, black, thick plastic body bags. I don't know what the heat was. but It's very, very hot.
1: Mm.
2: And handing these bodies on my own with all the juices uh, and all the rest of it and then getting them into white sheets and all the rest of it, you know, I'll never forget the smell. Mm. I'll never forget the peeling layers of skin, right? Mm-hmm. Just just peeling off the bodies. And if I'm ever walking through the uh, the Middle East, I will never forget the view of a man's ankles and his feet.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And, um, you know, I just I, you know, I'm. Why do I why do I mention that? I mean, I just think it's the reality. Um, I and mean, going back to Bosnia, you see, I mean, no one prepared, you know, no one who was in Bosnia went through basic training being told well, at some point, you know what? You weren't killing clothes with the enemy. What you're going to have to do is handle dead bodies in mass graves,
1: mm-hmm.
2: including children's bodies.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Do you see? Now, as mm-hmm. a chaplain, I can talk about that, but I can put it within a framework where that was the right thing to do at the right time for, you know, Yemenis fishermen and even two Somali pirates who are the sons, the husbands. Uh, the brothers of people in Somalia who are incredibly poor. That's why they're Somali pirates. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to say I did anything special. I believe I did the right thing, but Mm -hmm. the images will remain with me. But I think, again, it it just puts it raises the issue of the unexpected and um, and 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 images of war and um, experiences of war, which are outside of the framework and outside of the training and raise moral question marks and mm-hmm. are quite difficult to deal with. So, uh, you know, I just bring that up. I mean, I moved on from that um, to uh, to go and do the commando training um, at Limston
1: uh, mm-hmm. with the
2: Royal Marines, and um, I did that, and I got my green lid. I completed the 30-mile on, on Dartmoor, I think, the day before my 39th birthday. So
0: um, you, you did that. You passed the commando course to be a part yeah
2: of yeah so what happens with the chaplains I mean we don't carry arms and mm-hmm. you know we're not Royal Marine recruits so yeah. what they do is they sort of tailor it to the chaplain and,
1: Right.
2: <laughs> I mean um I think I went out on one of those you know you go out on the first exercise we stay out for 24 hours and you put all your kit out
1: yeah
2: and that sort of thing and um So I did that and I put all my kit out and I think they came around, they looked at my kit and they were like, you know what? We've heard about this guy. He was in the infantry in the British Army. I don't think he needs to come out in any more of these exercises. (laughs) You know, I remember we did the sort of cam and concealment. They say, right, okay, all right. uh, Who's this guy? This is a really good example. Oh, it's the chaplains. Right. So what happened was, I'll be honest, you know, they tailor made it for me and um, I did all the physical stuff. But I didn't have to do a lot of what the raw, you know, the Royal Marine re- recruits were doing. Um, mm. So I had to pass the commando tests and I had to do the physical stuff. But a lot of the other stuff was inappropriate because I wasn't going to carry arms. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think I, I mean, the thing is that. Um, you know we have muscle memory and we have experience mm-hmm. and by then i'd done marathons i knew i could go through the pain barrier yeah
1: know. yeah i
2: knew what i could endure. whereas if you're a young 18 year old you've never really up until that point pushed your body mm-hmm. even maybe 19 20 21 year old
1: yeah
2: so you know i would say yeah i was challenged by the the regains and some of those things but you, you just get on with it you know
0: mm. yeah and then you you, you deployed to Herrick 12. Yeah.
2: That, or, yeah, with or 40 Commando. Yeah.
0: Know. And yeah. um, so that was, you know, I was on Herrick 10 uh, with the Fusiliers, and we were uh, in the, evidently in the same place that you were uh, uh, Yeah. You were yeah. floating around. But you're now in a different war zone uh, yeah. as a chaplain, but, you know, in a war zone that's very much heav- heavily heavily late late you know just there's a lot of casualties going on Uh Um, uh and how was that seeing it from from your point of view then
2: well i think um (laughs) i mean you know would it have been easier if i'd had no experience of war and combat i don't know Hmm. i i don't know i mean in one sense it prepared me psychologically because I I was already, to some extent, battle-hardened. I think, though, it was a bit of a head-wrecker because, again, you know, my worldview had already changed. I'd I'd seen things outside the box. I'd seen the impact of violent conflict in Northern Ireland, Mm -hmm. in the former Yugoslavia. I'd I'd visited Rwanda, uh, Mm -hmm. and I'd seen the aftermath and the bodies in Rwanda and places like this, and some of the work I've been doing. And now I'm in Afghanistan. And, you know, I went there with a lot of optimism. I thought we were going to bring about change. I thought we were going to do something, you know, we were going to do something good. We were going to, you know, do something great for the people of Afghanistan, for the school children, uh, and all the rest of it. And, um, and I have to say, it was absolutely horrendous,
1: mm.
2: you know? And, um, You know, when you lose 14 Royal Marines, another seven from the uh, from the battle group who are attached arms from the British Army, US Marines, Afghan nationals, Afghan police. You know, uh, when you see that children are getting caught up in all this, just civilians and all the rest of it, it's quite difficult. It's quite difficult. And um, I really don't. Uh, You know, it was the 10th anniversary last year. Right. And um, it took me, I I left, I left the Royal Navy and uh, being a chaplain in, when was it? 2011. Why? Because while I was in Afghanistan, I was exchanging emails with my first wife. And I had three, uh, well, I had four children at that point, three children, my first marriage and then um, uh, another child who was really only about six months old to my second marriage. OK, but I was inquiring about the three children for my first marriage and um, I was getting emails and uh, prior to going to Afghanistan, I'd, I'd in fact, prior even to going to ships in the Royal Navy, I'd I'd completed applied suicide intervention skills training. Mm-hmm. And I was getting emails back from my first wife and there was something about my youngest son and I wasn't happy with what I was seeing in these emails. And I asked the direct question, is he suicidal? And the answer came back. Yes. Mm. Right. So after Afghanistan, uh, I left the Royal Navy in order to uh, be closer to those three young children and reconnect with those three young children, particularly my eight year old boy who was suicidal while I was in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And I realized it took me at least two and a half years, at least about two and a half years, two to three years, just as a, a, a rector here in Northern Ireland, to in any way get rid of the heaviness of Afghanistan,
1: mm-hmm. right
2: Just the, the sheer immediate heaviness, the immediate grief of it, the immediate uh, trauma of it, the immediate media, what the hell was that all about of it, right? Particularly in, in relation to the loss of life on all sides. And then there was the slow, slow, slow climb up to the 10th anniversary, thinking, you know, what is going to be done about this in terms of leadership and how is this going to be dealt with? OK. And I was completely isolated, you know, because mm-hmm. I'm not a Royal Marine. I was a Royal Navy chaplain, but I wasn't still in the Royal Navy. So what I'm saying is this. It's actually quite difficult for me even now to talk about Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Right. Right because of what I saw there on all sides because of the destruction of people's lives on all sides. Right. And I don't have an easy narrative. All I'm trying to do is work through the darkness and try and ensure in some small way that out of that horrendous pain and that horrendous suffering, some good comes. Now, you know, that in itself might be completely futile, but that's just what keeps me going and keeps me alive. Mm. um i mean i think uh, i mean there's a couple of there's a couple of um incidents that, that 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 come to mind uh from from afghanistan and i i don't say this with any judgement i just want to i think these are stories uh you know perhaps i need to tell so there was one, uh, there's one incident, uh, we were in Sangin, you know about Sangin. I mean, it was the most mm-hmm. dangerous place on earth for mm-hmm. anyone in, in in the armed forces, certainly when we were there. And I know about operations in other places and all the rest of it, but you know, Sangin was just a killing zone, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and we lost, I mean, the first three hits from memory were some of the best corporals we had in the raw in 40 Commander Royal Marines, right? So our enemy knew exactly what they were doing. They were taking out our best corporals. They were crushing our morale. Because if these guys guys are going, what does that mean for other people? But one particular incident, I remember this particular incident. And we were, I mean, we were the last British forces in Sangin, right? So Mm. we handed over to the U.S. Marines, okay? Mm -hmm. We went out with Valens. U.S. Marines didn't use Valens. Fuck that shit. That's for wimps. You know, they just walked to their deaths. Right, hmm. literally walked to their death. OK. Um, but anyway, I mean, I remember one incident. And I'm walking around Sangin, Fob Jackson, Fob Sabat Kadam, it them was them called. And there was all this commotion outside the, the sick bay or the medical center. Right. Was, hu-ha, hu-ha, hu-ha. You know, there's U.S. Marines with their body armor and helmets. So we're a bit more relaxed in all honesty. But there's all this commotion. You know, so I went and I said, what's going on? Oh, we've, we've 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 shot three Taliban and they're being brought back here. Right. So I was like, OK, this is significant. Right. So I said, get me an interpreter. Right. So this interpreter comes and I'm surrounded by, you know, a, a, a few sort of hierarchy from the US Marines and also Royal Marines. And this interpreter comes and this is me. You know, this is me, the chaplain. This is me with my worldview or whatever it may be. And I say this interpreter to this interpreter, I say, look, when when these people come, I want them to know that we are people of compassion. Right now, this is because I'm thinking war achieves nothing. Right. Mm-hmm. OK, we need to stop creating enemies. Right. Uh, you do you know what I mean, you know, we need to yeah. send the signal now that, you know, we're not here just to shoot the place up. Right. We're here to do mm-hmm. some good. So I say when these when they come. I want these people to know that we are people of compassion. And over my shoulder, someone says, no, you are a person of compassion. I think, right, ignore that, Andrew, keep going. So I say to the interpreter, when they come, I want them to know that we want them to live. And over my shoulders comes, no, you want them to live. I think, fuck, right? So I think, you know, they're not gonna take any religion from me or heaven and hell or whatever. So I turn around and I say to these two guys, one is a very senior Royal Marine and the other is a very senior U.S. Marine gunnery something or whatever. I say to the gunnery guy, I say, listen, a warrant officer, I say, when you're reincarnated. Do you want to come back to California? Or do you want to be reincarnated here, you know, to be poor and the downtrodden of people, of Afghanistan? Oh, well, California is no great place. And I thought, well, you know, here we go. Right. This is about power. This is about young men from poor backgrounds on all sides. Right. Wanting to feel powerful, holding weapons, getting one over other people. Unfortunately, it's the people of Afghanistan. And I don't judge them for that. But I think, you know, and then, you know, I'd be I'd be with other Royal Marines who, you know, I heard about their backgrounds and they just wanted to get the rounds down. And I get it. I understand it. But I think in terms of the moral injury and the impact of that, you know, emotionally, psychologically and all the rest of it, I found that very, uh, very difficult. So I think there are complexities and there are nuances uh, uh, to all this. But over and above all of that, I mean, there's a lot of suffering. There's a lot of broken hearts. There's a lot of broken families Mm -hmm. uh, uh, as a result of that. And you know that because. I mean, I was in Fob Nole, I'm working for the Royal Marines and the Royal Navy, and I see Fusiliers.
1: Mm-hmm. You know?
2: And suddenly yeah. I'm back, you know, I suddenly I'm back with the Fusiliers. And I'm in Fob Jackson and there's that cross in the middle of Fob Jackson. And I see this hackle and it's grey, right? This hackle's grey. I mean it's barely alive, this hackle. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, you know, that's all that's left. A hackle was left there by the fusiliers, it's never been replaced. Mm-hmm. So I'm afraid, I mean, if you were there, you know, you've been there, you know, you've been there at the sharp end and um, it's heartbreaking, isn't it?
0: Mm, It is. Um, It is. And you, did you, did you find that being, being from an experience like yours before that, did you find you had a different sense of appreciation for what the Marines were doing? on a day-to-day basis and what they were going through?
2: Yeah, I think the thing is, you know, every raw Marine was doing his best, right? Every single raw Marine was doing his best within the framework, you know, within the mission and within the framework, right? And, uh, you know, it's very, it's, it's very difficult. I think every Royal Marine was doing his best and, you know, was willing to lay down his life for somebody, you know, whatever, you know, for whatever reason and was showing enormous courage. I mean, I remember situations where, you know, Royal Marines were being killed day after day after day. Right. And, you know, very highly trained, well-motivated Royal Marines were struggling to get out of the base
1: mm-hmm.
2: and were vomiting once they came back in. Right. And I remember one particular, uh, you know, just yet another memorial service. And I gave the reading, the reading I chose was from Psalm 27. You know, the Lord is my light and my my salvation. Uh, I will not fear, something like that. You know, even when I'm surrounded by by my enemies, I will not be afraid. And at the end of it, it said something like wait for, you know, something like wait for the Lord or something like this. I I can't remember. But I mean, we're in survival mode. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm the chaplain and I'm, you know, I've got I don't know how many hundreds of people in front of me, uh, Royal Marines, British Army, US Marine Corps. And I'm basically saying, you know what, we will get out of this and uh, we will get out of it and we must get out of this. and We must keep going and we must use weapons of love. You know, it is a love that will keep us going. It's love that will keep us strong. And uh, I mean, the aftermath has been catastrophic. Absolutely, and from off and officers, you know, all the way down, all the way through the hierarchy, right? Just brokenness. Some people have kept going and kept their, you know, professional uh, careers online. Other people have fallen by the wayside. Mm-hmm. Royal Marines are dead by suicide. And another abiding memory was you remember decompression.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, really. But anyway, <laughs> I mean, we're in decompression. And you have got the whole I don't know how many, you know, the whole of Charlie Company are absolutely stark bollock naked. right?
1: Because
2: <laughs> that's yeah. what Royal Marines do. Yeah. And they've got this band in and they're playing the killers. You know, I've got soul, but I'm not a soldier. right? Yeah. And all these stark bollock naked Royal Marines are jumping up and down. And they are all basically saying, Fuck! We survived it, and the yeah. exhilaration of getting out of there alive, right? And I think you know that—that that was my interpretation of it. Um, but of course, not everyone else did get out alive. You know, well,
0: just lost yeah. you. Oh, there we go. Got your back. Sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. I just lost you for a little bit.
2: No, um, I was just saying. You know, the exhilaration of 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 of, of getting out there alive, and I think. I think the thing is that, you know, there's all sorts of question marks, but my heart, my heart was and always will be for the violent young man. Right. Mm-hmm. The young man who finds some form of peace in violence. Right. Because I empathize with that young man, because as we started, when I talk about my own upbringing. Right. I empathize with that young man. If I could have done it, I would have done it. I never had the opportunity in Northern Ireland. Right. And right, you know, up until I was 40, I'm now in my 50s. I probably still could kill, but I wouldn't do it now. I'm not sure I would do it. OK. But I've had enough contact with people who have killed. OK. And I think the thing is, my heart goes out to the violent young man. I don't care who you are. Um, And I know where that, you know, my senses that that comes from 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 something And, and 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 comes from somewhere. Mm -hmm. And uh, if I can be there for that person, you know, through it and then through the other side, that that, that's that's where I'm at. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, You know, I can't say anything more. I mean, it's too complex. Yeah. Um, You just have to be there with them in the darkness and stay with them in the darkness and hope that, you know, somehow in the darkness, you're some form of light. And it's nothing to do with judging people. It's just about Mm -hmm. accepting where we're at.
0: Yeah. So why why I was put in touch with you and you know you in touch with me because you know like what like you just touched on there the Marines are being riddled with suicide and so is the Fusiliers and yeah um, there's something that you is something that you were involved with or going to be involved with there's something that started called uh, Fusiliers versus Suicide. Yeah, so,
2: I mean, suicide has been in my life for uh, for quite a long time. My first wife was buried by suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I mentioned before that when I was in the Royal Navy, I made sure that I was trained in suicide because it's such mm-hmm. a serious issue. And I did applied suicide intervention skills training. And then when I came here to Northern Ireland and took up the job here, I, within the first year, I think there were like four or five suicides within you like like 100 meter circle of where I'm sitting right now. OK, but mm-hmm. they weren't, you know, they weren't Church of Ireland parishioners. It doesn't matter. You know, they were my neighbours. Mm-hmm. Um, so I could see, I mean, and, 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 in Kall Island and let's be honest, it's the aftermath of the troubles here. I mean, some of these mm-hmm. people are former combatants uh, mm-hmm. who were involved and took on the British army. Um some of them were involved in drugs, just self medicating because of their pain. All sorts of fragmentation and brokenness. I don't care, you know. That's you know, it's not for me to judge. Mm-hmm. So I made sure that um, uh, you know I was in, involved in suicide prevention, suicide uh, intervention, and I managed to get myself on a train, the trainer course on a course called uh, Safe Talk. Mm-hmm. Uh, in order to be uh, to to be saving lives. So I've been doing that for for some years now informally. I'm not paid to do it. I do it voluntarily. I mean, no one's actually phoning me up and saying, oh, can you do this? I just take the opportunity when it comes. Um, and uh, anyway, and then, um, obviously, you know, I had I'd had heard uh, about suicides. Uh, within the Fusiliers, one of those guys that carried the body of Andrew uh, Grundy, uh, Fusilier Mark Jenkinson, Jenky, sort of the earth guy, fabulous guy, you know, came into the army just to be loved, just to find belonging, just to find brothers, you know. And I heard over the years that, uh, you know, he'd completed suicide. And, you know, that's just heartbreaking. So there was all sorts of motivations to be going down this line. Uh, to, you know, remember his legacy. And then I met up with, uh, I met up with Dennis Curry because, uh, Dennis Curry was over here. His first wife was Northern Irish. Well, his wife was Northern Irish. Uh, so, tragically she died. And, um, so he was working over here and I met up with Dennis and we were hearing about all these suicides within the Fusiliers. And it's just like, we've got to do something, you know, what is going on? Is anyone doing anything? You know, what, what, what can we do? And I think um, and then I I, I I, did a couple of uh, safe talk, suicide alertness uh, training sessions with veterans over here and got Dennis involved. And I think Dennis could see uh, the power of this training and the worth of this training. And uh, we decided, right, you know, we've got to do something and we've got to do something in relation to the Fusiliers. So. Dennis got together uh, a group of guys, Fusilier legends, people I would have known when they were Fusiliers and Corporals, uh, you know, uh, back in the day. Uh, The likes of Stu Bateman, Paul Taylor, Aaron Waddell. I mean, I knew Dennis Samways. In fact, when I was adjutant, uh, I had two Regimental Start Majors in the the office next to me. Um, uh, Dennis Curry and Dennis Samways. And I knew Dennis Samway, uh, Dennis Samways uh, from from uh, a company as well. And, uh, and Dennis Curry from Charlie Company. So these guys I'd worked alongside when I was a young lieutenant and the and, uh, and captain. Anyway, so I think what we what we saw was that we needed something that was proactive and we needed something which was about intervention. Mm-hmm. And we needed something that the guys could relate to. So we formulated, I formulated a script for um, some initial, uh, an initial video that we, we just put out uh, through some of the Fusilier channels on, uh, on, on social media. And uh, we want to, we want to take this forward because um, there is an enemy out there. It is the biggest killer of soldiers right now and the biggest mm-hmm. killer of veterans the biggest hmm. killer of men under 40 or men under 50 in the united kingdom and it's called suicide um so yeah we we've 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 we just starting a project called uh, fusilier's versus suicide
0: hmm. and that's one thing that's always since i've started this podcast and i've wanted to get across i even said it on the hr podcast when i went on there it's suicide is for me, and really one of the reasons I started this podcast and wanted to try and get it out there is just suicide's a bigger killer of men under forty, regardless of veterans or anything. But there's nothing, there's no, you know, when, when there's no help from the government really when it comes to this. You, you get people, so so it's going to be people like yourselves and groups like that where we're going to have to start doing things to to help people because uh. it's, it's not going away. And it's not no. and unfortunately, it's not changing, and it needs to.
2: Well, I think the thing is, you know, I mean, I'm I'm going to generalize now, but my analysis is we're 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 in a war of attrition, okay, uh, where you know suicide appears to be winning. Mm. It's not, but you know, it, it, it appears to be winning. I think also we've we've got into what we might call trench warfare. And particularly, you know, generalizing, there's a veterans community on one side and there's the government on the other side. And, you know, they're sort of shouting across no man's land. You know, what are you doing, Minister for Veterans and all the rest of it? Right. Now, that's that might be achieving something. But I think, um, you know, we're looking at what we might call manoeuvre, warfare, find, fix, strike, exploit. OK, <laughs> Now, I'm full of optimism. I'm absolutely full of optimism on this. I'm full of hope we can defeat suicide. All suicides are preventable. OK, people don't want to hear that. People like to say, oh, well, you know, if they're going to do it, they're going to do it. No. All the research suggests and, you know, this evidence based research that all suicides are preventable at some stage in the process. Mm-hmm. OK, mm-hmm. Um so what we're what we're going to do is we're going to we're going to look to roll out training that empowers people to take on the enemy of suicide. So the, fo- the first part of this is find. So what we're looking for is suicidal ideation, suicidal thoughts. Now, the thing is, there's nothing wrong with suicidal thoughts. OK, it's a normal part of of being human. So, mm-hmm. you know, back in the day, I've still got my you know, I've got a motorbike again. But, you know, Back in my 20s, I would have written a 1100cc motorbike and I would have thought about the adrenaline rush, the sheer joy of letting go of the handlebars at like 120, 130 miles an hour. Right. So I have had my own suicidal thoughts in terms of the adrenaline rush of dicing with death. Okay. Mm. Now, in certain situations with combat experience, with all that survivor guilt and all the darkness or getting into impossible, hopeless situations, the anguish, the despair, suicide is an option. Okay. So we know that veterans and men generally and women are having suicidal thoughts what we what we what we need to do is find those suicidal thoughts by what we see by what we hear by what we learn by our our gut instinct and then we need to fix them right to stop those suicidal thoughts becoming plans to end life by suicide okay Mm -hmm. so it's okay for people to have suicidal thoughts what's not okay is for them to complete suicide and end their lives right we cannot afford to lose them right they are our band of brothers they were there with us it doesn't matter what role they played they were willing to put a beret and hackle on or sign up. So therefore, we belong to them and they belong to us. So we're looking for the suicidal thoughts. We're on a mission to find. When we find them, we fix them. How do we fix them? By direct and open talk about suicide. We mention the word suicide. OK, we do it sensitively. We build mm-hmm. up to it. We show them we care. We show that we you know, we've been listening and we fix the suicidal thoughts by reducing the isolation. And using the word suicide and all the research says is doesn't plant a a seed in their head about suicide. No. The moment we use the word suicide, it relieves some of the burden because they know then they're not on their own. Mm -hmm. So that's how we fix it. And then we strike. And the way we strike this is we strike the enemy of suicide by empowering the person. Right. And we listen to them and we ask them, you know, what brought suicide into your life, mate? Or, you know, why? Why are you thinking about ending your life? And we listen to their deepest pain, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: you know, the the things that, you you know, no one wants to talk about their childhood pain, Uh, whatever it may be, the shame, the guilt, the feeling of failure, the fears. And we say, you know what, mate? It's all understandable. Right.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: And fair play to you for thinking like that. If I was in your situation, if I've been through what you've been through or your childhood. I'd be thinking exactly the same thing, mate. It's okay. And as we listen to them, we give them the opportunity uh, to empower themselves and, in some way, objectify and maybe, please God, take responsibility for their own lives because it's only them that can save their lives. So that's how we strike through kindness, through tenderness, uh, through listening. Okay. And then we exploit by keeping them safe. And that's through networks, through mental health specialists, uh, whatever it may be educating family, raising awareness, uh, all the rest of it. So that's just a sort of uh, 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 an overview of it. But um, I'm full of hope. Why? Because, you know, we're not actually dealing with something that is uh, too difficult to deal with. It's not a mental health issue over and above everything else. It's just Mm. a human issue. I mean, yesterday, right? I go out, I leave this rectory, I walk down the road to buy some marshmallows, okay, and some chocolate digestives so that my children can toast them on the fire, right? On the open fire here. I'm on my way back and I see a car in the car park and I think, oh my goodness, it's his car, right? So I go up into the graveyard and I find him, right? He set up a chair opposite the grave and there's a bunch of flowers there. And he's going to sit down and he's going to he's going to sit in front of the grave of his loved one who left the house to go and pick up one of his children and never came back. Right. Mm. And I know, I know that he has been thinking suicidal thoughts, not because he's mentally ill. No, because he suffered traumatic grief and anguish and pain, which is indescribable. And it's only because he's got his children that he has to keep going and stay alive for them. And they give him a sense of belonging and a sense of purpose. But without them, he could be dead by suicide. Nothing to do with mental illness. No, Mm. just indescribable pain. Psychic, you know. So I think this is, you know, this is why I'm so full of hope that, you know, we belong to a network where, you know, we have some incredibly resilient people and we've got some incredibly kind and compassionate people. Um, and you know, some of the people I'm working with, you know, if you were in front of them when they were your company's aren't made, you'd have probably thought they were the devil, but underneath all that were big hearts, you know, mm-hmm. who love their men and want to the best for their men. So it's about, you know, building on those opportunities, building on those networks. And I think it's about soldiering and it's about courage Mm -hmm. and uh, it's having emotional courage to take this on because we're big hearted people. So, yeah. fusiliers versus suicide.
0: And um, you're going to, so it's it's only the infancy stage at the minute. Is that right? And then eventually the plans to have a have a website. And
2: yeah. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, you know, this isn't my full time job. It's not these boys full time job. Okay, so, you know, we're doing this within our own resources. Bottom line is, will the Ministry of Defense or even the regiment back it up formally? Probably not. Right. Mm -hmm. For all sorts of reasons, policy, procedures, uh, whatever. We get that. But that's Mm -hmm. not the point. You know, we're not involved in them and us. We are just out this to save lives because we love people. We love our men and they loved us and were willing to do everything for us, you know. So what we're going to do is, uh, yeah, we're going to hope to get a website set up and uh, and a YouTube channel set up. And then, I mean, it's very difficult at the moment with COVID-19, mm-hmm. you know, roll out some some videos and uh, build awareness. And it's, it's just it's about building enough awareness uh, to keep people safe. And it's about you know, subverting that sort of what you see that I'm okay, mate, and I'm, you know, everything's okay in my life. And uh, it's educating people to to see that actually that person is not okay.
1: <laughs>
2: and you can go there with them. And this is <laughs> how you go there with them. You and, and if you go there with them in this way, then there's every possibility that, you know, they're going to be okay. Uh, Because this is what all the research tells us, uh, and this is what the, you you know, the the, the suicidologists and psychologists uh, 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 tell us. And I think, uh, I mean, the other part of this is, uh, you know, making sure that we have people on the ground who 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 are trained uh, uh, in intervention and in compassion and sensitivity. so, uh, you know, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of understandable fear out there about suicide because it's a taboo subject. It's absolutely mm-hmm. horrendous for bereaved families.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And, um, you know, at the command level, uh, there, there's fear and anxiety. You know, they don't want to acknowledge there's a problem, but mm-hmm. there is a problem. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, you know, as a as a former platoon commander, who you know took his men through two and a half years of you know living on the edge in the combat zone that was northern ireland i owe it to them you know to take this forward
0: yeah and i think the more the more the more that's out there and one of the things i've said before is we need to we need to get it to a point where you know, like you said, suicide has been a taboo subject for years, but not just taboo, but um, not just suicide, but mental health and working yeah, on mental yeah. health. But the more we put it, the more we put it out there through various different ways, like what you what you're doing and let say podcasts, what I'm doing, what other people are doing on their podcast, the Absolutely. more it becomes acceptable and talk about because at the minute, not at the minute, but, you know, in recent time, it's been such a taboo subject that no one even talks about it so when people are feeling down and you know they they don't feel there's anywhere there's there's no outlet for them but the yeah, more yeah. the more we we offer as a society as people to help our fellow people the better yeah, it, can be, yeah. it can become and the more lives that can be saved
2: uh uh-huh. no you're absolutely spot on i think you know what you're doing mate is is is, is amazing and I think the thing is that, you know, everything is understandable if we're able to set back, you know, uh, you know, step back and look at it. So, you know, take my parents or my dad, you know, using that bamboo cane against me. Right. He thought he was doing the right thing. Right. Mm. And within his framework at the time, he probably was doing the right thing. You know, because back in the day, that's what you did. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, the aftermath of it wasn't good. But you know, at least I've got a bit of self awareness about that and I can talk about it, right? Mm -hmm. And if I go to my dad about it, he probably doesn't even remember it. Okay, and I just have to let him go and think, well, okay, Mm -hmm. mate, you know, it is what it is. Now that's not to excuse anything which is criminal or abusive by any means. But I think we need to be We need to be saying to okay to people, and within confidential, you know, within confidential uh, settings, we need to be saying to people, it's okay to talk about things that you know you just wouldn't want to talk about, Mm for what for for uh, for whatever reason. I think, and I think this is why you know I brought up the issue of moral injury. Mm And it's somewhere where, you know, you can understand the Ministry of Defence doesn't want to go. I mean, they don't want to go there in terms of what went wrong and decisions that were made that were wrong and, you know, leadership decisions that were made that were wrong. Or, or, or that sort of thing, because it opens up big question marks. But somehow we've got to be able to talk about these things within our own confidential groups. Um, yeah. Because if because. You know, one of the you know, one of the things about suicide is that people are carrying burdens that are just too heavy for them to burden, to carry. Right. Whatever the, the burden might be, you know, it, it might be a sense of failure. I should have done this or I shouldn't have done that. And if they can't talk about it and unburden it themselves with somebody else and they're holding that secret, it can just be too heavy to carry. <clears throat> and so all they're looking, they don't want to die. I mean, I don't think anyone wants to die by suicide. They just want the pain to stop.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And this is where, you know, when we come to, you know, we, we find the suicidal fault, we fix it, with direct and open talk and we strike. And we strike at the pain by, by really, um, you know, easing it out uh, and giving them a top, an opportunity to talk so they're not carrying it on their own. That's it. and I think, you know, I mean, I, I have been married three times, I have seven children from three marriages and five stepchildren, right? And, you know, that's not easy, but I'm still full of hope. And I think it's, uh, again, there's no shame in any of this stuff, really. It is what it is. And a lot of that comes from the trauma of my combat experiences and, you know, all, 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 all the rest of it. And... It's, you know, people find themselves in these seemingly impossible situations, but there's someone out there who has been through something similar and, mm-hmm. and can say, listen, mate, you know, I don't, you know, I'm not going to say I understand your pain because the only person who understands your pain is you, but pain I can you. see that your pain is understandable and I'm here alongside you. And, oh. you know, we, we can work through this. We can work through this together and yeah. uh, it, it, it will pass. And I, I think the other, I mean, one of the if you look at the Ministry of Defence's research on suicide, OK, and, you know, the academics from King's College or Manchester University yeah. or whatever. One of the things that they do highlight, I mean, they're, they're reluctant to sort of highlight combat experience. Right. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that they do uh, highlight and it comes up consistently is is childhood adversity.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And when I think back to some of those Fusiliers, you know, that were in my platoon or that I knew in a company or even as an adjutant, it's absolutely clear that people were coming from childhood adversity Mm -hmm. okay, from uh, emotional frameworks where perhaps it was made absolutely clear. You don't belong. Mm -hmm. Maybe you're a waste of space.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Uh, You know, maybe you shouldn't have been born. Uh, you know, some of those sorts of things or um, or they were abused. I mean, uh, any form of abuse is uh, is, is a vulnerability uh, in, in in terms of suicide. And uh, without knowing it, I mean, I, you know, I, I went for the A to Z and I found the army and I went in there. But without knowing it, I suppose it gave me belonging. Uh, you know, it gave me it gave me family uh, and all the rest of it. And I think um, I think it's a really, a really in, a important aspect to this um, is that, uh, you know, if you have these traumatic experiences in, com- in combat and you're down on your knees emotionally and psychologically, what are you calling on? You know, what, what, what's your foundation? And if your childhood upbringing has not given you a foundation emotionally and psychologically, you know, in terms of belonging and purpose in life before you join the army, then you might be particularly vulnerable,
1: mm.
2: you know, to, 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 to suicide. And, uh, you know, I think this is where it's so important that uh, if we call ourselves a family, as the Fusiliers, then we, you know, we reinforce that sense of, 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 of belonging and family, you know. Um, mm-hmm. but, you know, and, 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 and I hope that, I hope that, that keeps people safe, and if if people within the regiment became father figures, you know, as company sergeant majors, regimental sergeant majors, or even officers, then we see how important that is, and we we continue to be there for people. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, going back to turning up to Sandhurst and having to dress the right way and say the right thing and all this sort of stuff. I mean, all that's bullshit when it comes to suicide. Mm. You know, it's about authenticity. Uh, it's about our common humanity. Um, it's about all being in this together. So one of the one of the, in fact, we did it over the weekend. We got a little WhatsApp group going. So you know, uh, once a fusilier, always a fusilier. Yeah, yeah? you've heard that, haven't you? Right. <laughs> So we've been looking at that and thinking, well, look, how can we, that mnemonic of uh, once a Fusilier, always a Fusilier, how can we change that uh, as part of this Fusilier uh, versus suicide? OK, so what we came up with was open, authentic friendship, accepting altogether Fusiliers. Uh, and, you know, you can break that down and say, you know, as we take on suicide, we need to be open, And honest, no bullshit, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, warm, open hearted, open minds, open hearted towards people. We need to be authentic. We need to be genuine in our approach. Right. Um, And genuine, genuinely caring. Yes, it's about friendship. And it's about accepting people with all their shit. Right. Right. No judgment. Unconditional love. Uh, Accepting people with all their shit and saying, you know what? We're all in this together and we're Fusiliers. So, uh, yeah, I, I think it's, I, I, you know, this won't be a perfect project, but it shows intent and um, we're going to keep taking it forward.
0: Yeah, um, I think it's amazing. Um, I think just me listening to your story and hopefully other people listen to your story, how you varied from uh, an infantry officer to you know, the Padre and, and how, how that, transitions and you know how your career span was for me really interesting and i'm sure it will be for many other people and how you've overcome various different things to finally get to where you want to get to um but yeah i really appreciate you coming on and sharing it with me
2: Uh uh-huh i think yeah and i think the thing is you know i've had to educate myself david right i've had to teach myself about love right yeah and educate myself in love I love for myself, love for my children, love for other people. And we don't talk about a lot about love, you know, because people go down the homoerotic line and all this sort of thing. And they're scared of talking about love and all the rest of that. You know, quite honestly, it doesn't matter if you're gay or, or whatever, you know, uh, doesn't matter. Um, but I think we need to talk about love and unconditional love. And all of us have an opportunity to research all this stuff. I mean, you go online and research suicide prevention and all this stuff. All the stuff is out there. And uh, if people are lacking love for themselves or finding it difficult to love other people, then all the help is out there as well. And uh, mm. we can do this together, you know? Brilliant. Okay.
0: Well, I think it's a great place to end there.
2: Yeah. Yeah. All right. God so bless.
0: You too. Thanks very much.
2: Yeah. Thanks for all you're doing. Take it easy. Cheers. Okay. Bye.
0: And there it was. Yeah. Some technical issues at the end with the sound for some reason, even though I've got a Gucci microphone, it's still, coming through shit sound. Uh yeah, so that was a bloody interesting story and different different outtake on on looking at things. Someone who went from being a combat infantry officer to a Padre. So it's different and sick and it was, you know, for me it was interesting as well and I hope it was for you. I'm gonna try get better at these online ones. Hopefully these lockdowns don't last too long and can get and do do more more in person i've got a couple good ones actually lined up um but yeah we'll see only time will tell until next time lay low move fast stay safe and i'll see you then